Yay old man. To another episode of Yay, Nay, or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And for this episode, and probably for the next few episodes, I'm going to be trying something a little bit different. If you listened all the way through the last episode, you would have heard me figure out in real time that this week's slate of projected movies was a little bit different. I had added so many films to my potential watch list from Shudder.com and the mainstream streaming platforms had started Halloween very, very early. So I had an awful lot of horror films on my to-watch list. So I thought, okay, may as well do a horror streaming special, particularly since this week's cinematic releases were a little bit strange as well, and I'd already watched two of the films that were out at the cinema this week. One at a festival screening earlier in the year and one at a Q&A a couple of weeks ago. So I thought, okay, it's going to be a short cinema episode with only the four films in it and a horror streaming special. But since I was doing that anyway, it occurred to me, why not try stretching this format out into the future? splitting my podcast reviews between films released in the cinema and films released on streaming platforms because one of the things I've become increasingly irritated by is the fact that more often than not these podcast episodes are released at least a week after the cinematic films have come out and in a lot of cases that's just no longer going to be relevant. And that delay is almost always because of the streaming films I feel I need to catch up on. So what if I split the two strands? As soon as I've finished watching all the cinematic films I want to watch in a particular week, usually by Saturday or Sunday, record about them as quickly as I can and release that as quickly as I can, albeit it will be released before Tuesday afternoon when the next week's cinema schedules will be officially released. But that will be more timely for the cinematic films, and then I can just record as and when for as many streaming films or VOD films as I happen to have watched in the meantime. So potentially this could be a 
new or mildly new format for this podcast with more frequent but shorter podcasts in this feed. I'm certainly going to try it out for this week and potentially a couple of weeks into the future, see if it does work as it should work on paper. But maybe you will be getting podcast reviews of cinema releases separately from podcast reviews of streaming and VOD releases. So I'm going to try it out for the next couple of weeks. Which is all to say that in this episode there will only be four reviews, which is a much, much shorter show than I usually release. All of them out at the cinema this week, although some of them quite difficult to find. In this episode, I will be reviewing Peter Strickland's new film, Flux Gourmet, which I saw with an in-person Q&A a couple of weeks ago. The cosy movie based on a novel from the 1950s, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. The special release anime film, Inu O, directed by my favourite animation director, Masaaki Uwaza, and also the Finnish Oscar submission for this year, Girls, 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 which did very well at the Sundance Film Festival earlier in the year, and I saw at a queer film festival a couple of months ago. So those are the four films I will be reviewing in this episode. And without further ado, let's get on with today's show. Big Screen Flux Gourmet is the latest film from director Peter Strickland, who I am quite a big fan of. Sitting here in my bedroom recording this podcast, right next to me is a poster of Peter Strickland's last film, In Fabric, which I must admit I wasn't the hugest fan of, but I did go to a director's Q&A and he was handing out posters, so I have an In Fabric poster and it's on my wall. And Flux Gourmet, once again, Peter Strickland came to the Watershed Cinema in Bristol for an in-person Q&A, so I went along to see it a couple of weeks in advance. Peter Strickland started out making the very small-scale independent film Catalin Varga, which he made in Hungary, which until very recently Peter Strickland made his home in Hungary, but according to the Q&A for Flux Gourmet, he has now moved back to his native England thanks to Brexit. But following Catalin Varga, which got some attention and success, he followed that up with Barbarian Sound Studio, starring Toby Jones. A very strange film <laughs> dealing with a sound mixer making a giallo film in the 1970s and slowly losing his grip on his sanity, or that seems to be what the situation is anyway. But it was exactly the kind of film I like, you know, very ambiguous, what exactly is going on, who knows. And then Peter Strickland came out with The Duke of Burgundy, which 
I absolutely love. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I think The Duke of Burgundy is a fantastic film. A very sensitive portrayal of a BDSM relationship and the demands and the issues which rise when you have very intense BDSM scenes in a long-term relationship. But that was a film that was set in a very, very weird and very specific milieu. An entire female community, all of whom are entomologists, very interested in butterflies and moths. You know, the Duke of Burgundy is a butterfly. So yeah, very, very specific milieu in a very interesting story. And then we have In Fabric, which is the one Peter Strickland film I've seen, which, I, like I said, I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, basically, it's a film about a haunted dress. And I think it was a little bit meandering. But yeah, In Fabric is still a, an intriguing film. And certainly intriguing enough that when I saw that Peter Strickland was coming to Bristol in order to do an in-person Q&A for his latest film, Flux Gourmet, I was very, very interested in seeing it. Flux Gourmet revolves around the world of sonic catering. These are people who are a mixture of performance artists, musicians and chefs using the sounds of cooking in order to create art. And this is a world in which this kind of thing is not only an accepted part of society and culture, it is also an aspirational aspect of society and culture. There are people out there who grow up dreaming of being sonic caterers. And this is the very specific world in which we are dealing. There is a, an artist's retreat, which is run by Gwendolyn Christie, who appeared in In Fabric, who sets up month-long residencies for these groups of sonic caterers. And the latest artists in residency, or sonic caterers in residency, are led by Fatma Mohamed, the Romanian actress who has appeared in all of Peter Strickland's films, and her assistants slash band members slash lackeys, Asa Butterfield and Ariane Labad. Fatma Mohamed has a very specific idea as to what her sound, her performance should be, and is very demanding of her associates, who are starting to feel that maybe they deserve a little bit more credit since they're the ones who actually do all the technical stuff, and Fatma Mohammed is just the ideas person. And all of this inter-band tension is being needled by Gwendolyn Christie, who is financing this whole thing, and she is starting to make suggestions, you know, while I'm paying for this, maybe you should listen to one or two of my ideas. You know, the clash between the creative and the non-creative is a definite part of this. And also the fact that Gwendolyn Christie has hired somebody to document this latest residency 
played by Makis Papadimitriou. And as Makis Papadimitriou is trying his best to document everything that's going on, all the tensions, all the creativity, all the dramas inherent in this situation, and being surrounded by food and people cooking food, Makis Papadimitriou is starting to suffer from intestinal problems, which are trying to be solved by the doctor, who is also in residence in this big country house, played by Richard Bremer, who was also in In Fabric. And Richard Bremer is a very elitist, very snobbish doctor who is always talking about Hellenic philosophy and the, oh, you haven't read the great Greek poets and, you know, little understanding that both Makis Papadimitriou and Ariane Labed are, you know, Greek. So his elitist and misogynist attitude isn't helping the situation either. So tensions arising not only in Makis Papadimitriou's intestines, but also in the artistic integrity of this latest artistic collective. And something is probably going to give. As I always say, and as I've just described, Peter Strickland is a very, very weird filmmaker. He has a very specific milieu. I mean, as the person who was doing the Q&A said, I mean, you know within five minutes of watching a film, of starting watching a film, you know it's a Peter Strickland project. He has a very specific idea. I mean, not least of which the fact that Fatma Mohammed is always in his films. I mean, looking at Fatma Mohammed's IMDb page, 99% of it is stuff that Peter Strickland has done. Nobody else hires her, and yet she's really, really good. I mean, the fact that she's got a Romanian accent is holding her back, I mean, at least according to Peter Strickland, and you kind of believe him. But yeah, Fatma Mohammed is excellent, but you always know that if it's a Peter Strickland movie, Fatma Mohammed's going to be in it. And there's you know some people who have worked with him repeatedly. I mean, Gwendolyn Christie and Richard Bremer were both in, in Fabric. There's a very small... Well, it's a cameo more than anything by Leo Bill, who was one of the leads of In Fabric. And while the other major cast members haven't worked with Peter Strickland in the past, I mean, both Ariane Labed and Makis Papadimitriou have experiences working with you know new Greek weird directors like Yorgos Lanthimos and Athena Rachel Tsangari. So they are used to this kind of strange environment, and it is a very, very strange environment. This entire concept of performance art meeting food and performance and sexuality, all of that blending together, and this is an accepted part of society and an aspirational part of their society. I mean, it is a very, very specific worldview. And basically, that's what we have created here. I mean, this is the soundscapes, the immersive quality of the sound of something like Barbarian Sound Studio, set in a very, very specifically built world, 
like the Duke of Burgundy. I mean, even some of the costuming in Flux Gourmet did strongly remind me of the Duke of Burgundy. And speaking of the costumes, I mean, one thing about Gwendolyn Christie is she is always, always wearing these fabulous, elaborate haute couture dresses. Some of them are a little bit absurd, but they always look absolutely fabulous. She is always immaculately put out. I mean, even this, what she wears to bed is elaborate and bizarre, but kind of beautiful. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of actually a decent description of this film. It's elaborate, it's bizarre, but it's kind of beautiful. That's kind of what Flux Gourmet ends up being. There's a lot of stuff here about art and the artistic temperament and the absurdity of art. And, you know, that clash between the creatives and the non-creatives. I mean, the non-creative person, Gwendolyn Christie, who is paying for it, making suggestions and everything that Gwendolyn Christie suggests just being rejected out of hand, despite the fact, you know, it's not much of a change and it might actually improve things. But no, you are not creative. You, We will not have anything from outside. And Fatma Mohammed having a very specific idea. I mean, this is her collective. She is the person who has the ideas. And the people who actually do the work, you know, Ariane Labed and Asa Butterfield, aren't getting the credit, aren't getting the recognition. And yet, arguably... They're just as talented, if not more talented, than Fatma Mohammed. So the creative tensions, the personal tensions within this collective, within this group, for want of a better term, that's a very strong part of this. And seeing how everything plays out, seeing the egos at play, and how all of those egos clash against each other, that's one of the strongest aspects of this film. And I have to say, I really, really like this film. I know I was going to be more or less on Peter Strickland's wavelength. I mean, like I said, I wasn't a huge fan of In Fabric, but all of his other films I've seen, I mean, I haven't seen Catalin Varga, but the other of Peter Strickland's films I've seen, I've really enjoyed. And I really immerse myself on those wavelengths. So if you know you're going into something a little bit weird, a little bit out there, if you accept that that is the kind of experience you're going to have, then I definitely think that Peter Strickland's films are something to appreciate, are something to latch onto. And I think that Flux Gourmet is a very good example of Peter Strickland's milieu. There's high absurdity. Some of this is laugh-out-loud funny. Some of it is very disturbing, arguably even disgusting. But it's all got this heightened reality to it. I mean, being put in this very, very specific world. All of it works together, and it raises interesting questions like how do you deal with the artistic temperament? How do you deal with not being given enough credit? How do you deal with a non-creative putting their two cents in? All of that stuff is there and done very well. I mean, only recently I watched the streaming VOD film Love Spreads, which dealt with some of the same issues, 
and didn't deal with them at all well, in my opinion. Whereas Flux Gourmet does deal with these issues in a really fascinating, albeit very bizarre, way. And I loved it. I mean, if you are on Peter Strickland's wavelength, then Flux Gourmet is absolutely what you expect. You will get out of it what you get out of a Peter Strickland film. If anything I've said about this film is at all intriguing, then definitely, definitely see it at the cinema. This is a film like Barbarian Sound Studio, where the sound is so vitally important that being absolutely immersed in the surround sound of a cinema screen, I think that is a crucial part of the experience of Flux Gourmet. So if you are at all interested in it, I urge you, seek it out at the cinema and don't trust your home sound system because I'm sure that it will be such a better experience in a carefully arranged and organised sound system in a cinema screen. So if you are interested in this, I urge you to seek it out at the cinema. And yeah, I know this won't be for everybody, but if you think you might be on this film's wavelength, I do urge you to check out Flux Gourmet. It is currently available in cinemas, and for me, it is a yay. Changing directions completely. The widest release film at the cinema this week is the rather cosy British movie Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is based on a successful novel from the 1950s, written by Paul Gallico, a rather successful author in his era, although somewhat forgotten today. He wrote the short stories and novels which were turned into the movies The Snow Goose, The Three Lives of Thomasina, and The Poseidon Adventure. A rather odd and eclectic selection of movies, but Paul Gallico also wrote Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which was the first of several novels starring this particular character, a London charwoman in the 1950s. It's been adapted many times over the years for television. There was a very popular TV movie made in the 90s starring Angela Lansbury and directed by her son. But this latest version is written and directed by Anthony Fabian, who has a couple of very forgettable movies in his past and not very much else interesting on his filmography. But the main character is now being taken over by Leslie Manville, who is a London charwoman in 1957. She goes to rich people's houses and cleans them up. More often than not, she is overlooked and excluded, treated appallingly by her privileged, wealthy clients, just living a quiet life and hoping against hope that even though it's 12 years after the war, her husband, who was an RAF pilot, will come back to her. 
but he's been missing in action for so long that it's probably not going to happen. One day, cleaning the house of the aristocratic Anna Chancellor, she sees a beautiful dress that Anna Chancellor has just purchased for the exorbitant sum of £500 from Christian Dior in Paris. And instantly, Mrs. Harris is starstruck by the beauty and the glamour of this dress, and instantly decides, I'm going to save up and get myself a dress from Christian Dior in Paris. Which is probably a futile dream, but it is a dream nonetheless. But several things start happening. She wins some money on the football pools. Does a modern audience even know what the football pools are? Do they still do the football pools? I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, she wins some money on the football pools. She wins some money gambling with her friend Jason Isaacs, who works at the local dog track. And she is informed that her husband's remains have been found. And therefore, she is owed something like 12 years back pay for a war widow's pension. So with all these windfalls in her pocket, Mrs. Harris can finally achieve her somewhat absurd dream and go to Paris to Christian Dior and get a beautiful haute couture gown. When in Paris, she clashes against the manager of the House of Dior, played by Isabelle Huppert, who has a very elitist attitude as to who deserves to get a dress from the House of Dior. But this interaction is witnessed by the accountant of the House of Dior, played by Lucas Bravo, who we only recently saw playing the French pilot in Ticket to Paradise. But this accountant, Lucas Bravo, says to Isabel Huppert, look, this woman, yes, she's not our usual clientele, but she's got cash. Do you know how hard it is to get money off these rich and wealthy people who come to the House of Dior? We have to chase them up, and sometimes they don't even pay, even though they can afford to. She's got cash. Let's give her a dress. So, with honesty and decency, Leslie Manville starts working her magic on the House of Dior and the employees of the House of Dior. A model, Alba Baptista, who Lucas Bravo clearly has a massive crush on. And a widowed Marquis, Lambert Wilson who takes Leslie Manville under his wing and shows her the ins and outs of how haute couture works. So will this working-class English charwoman get her hands on a fabulous gown from the House of Dior? 
I've described this film in the build-up to it as a cosy type of movie, a movie that is aimed squarely at the grey pound. A more mature audience, cup of tea and a biscuit, and enjoy a gentle movie. That's what we are aiming for here. And it has to be said, I think this is a very, very good example. I found this charming and delightful. I mean, yes, you can pretty much see everything happening on rails, but it's still very impressive and very charming. One film that really strongly came to mind in this film, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, is Paddington. Which might sound a little bit weird, but in both Paddington and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, we have a protagonist who approaches the world with decency, with kindness, with honesty, and gradually the people around them get affected by this, and a community of sorts is formed. The way that Leslie Manville, with her no-nonsense attitude, goes in and nudges Lucas Bravo, saying, look, you clearly love this model, Alba Baptista, just ask her out. I mean, for God's sake. The charm of this suave Marquis Lambert Wilson, maybe there's even a frisson of romance. I mean, now that Leslie Manville is finally confirmed to be a widow, maybe the time has come to let romance back into her life, even at this late stage. And why not try and form a romantic attachment to this rich, handsome, suave Marquis? And gradually, the the very confrontational relationship that Leslie Manville has with Isabel Huppert, that gradually thaws and melts as well. And Isabel Huppert has this very interesting angle. I mean, this is a woman who has been by the side of Christian Dior for the last 10 years, since the House of Dior was created. And the exclusivity, the luxury, the status of the House of Dior is all she cares about. And suddenly, this charwoman has come in. I mean, yes, she's got a handbag full of cash, but she's still a charwoman. And Isabel Huppert can't quite wrap her head around this dowdy working-class Englishwoman coming in and getting a Dior gown. But she works her magic on you know, the model, Alba Baptista, the accountant, Lucas Bravo, various people who work in the house of Dior. I mean, the administrative assistant, Roxanne Duran, clearly loves Leslie Manville. I mean, the no-nonsense way she comes in and just says, I want a frock. And back in London, Leslie Manville also makes some extra money as a seamstress, doing repairs for local people in a region in Battersea. So at one point, Leslie Manville just goes into the atelier and starts sewing. And her attitude works its magic on the people around her, and everything works out nice, and everything gets warmed, everything gets changed. And a sense of community is formed in this strange situation. 
which also folds into one of the more unexpected themes of Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, and that is trade unions and collective bargaining. There's very much uh, an idea that the way things have worked before for Christian Dior and for the world in general in 1957, those things no longer work quite as well and no longer apply quite as strongly. It turns out the House of Dior is struggling to the extent that there's one scene where Isabelle Huppert tries to fire half her staff, including the nice admin assistant Roxanne Duran. And Leslie Manville puts her foot down and says, no, we are not having this, we're going on strike. And outside, there's a bin workers strike going on, which is a very clever way of killing two birds with one stone because there's rubbish all over the streets. So, I mean, the idea of being on strike and trade unions comes up. But I'm betting it also helped cover up modern street furniture, just pile rubbish over it, and you didn't need to do quite as much set decoration particularly since this film was not shot in Paris, it was shot in Budapest. I mean, earlier in the film, Alba Baptista takes Leslie Manville around Paris in her open-top sports car, and there's some very bad green screen of the Place de la Concorde and the Arc de Triomphe and all those places. You can clearly tell it was done in green screen because they didn't shoot in Paris, they shot in Budapest. But yeah, I'm sure piles of rubbish helped with the set decoration. But And it also builds into this idea of trade unions and the working class working together in order to change things for the better for the company at large. And with these new ideas, these new mildly socialist ideas that Leslie Manville comes up with, the House of Dior is in a much better position at the end of the movie than it was at the beginning, and Isabelle Huppert has fully been won over. The conclusion of this film is really nice. I mean, I won't go too far. Suffice it to say that Leslie Manville has worked her magic so well on the people around her that a sense of community is built, and a problem comes up that everybody works together in order to solve. And it's really, really nice. Although it has to be said that this particular conclusion, I mean, one thing I did notice is that in order for this conclusion to work, I mean, there's no delicate way of saying this, but this denouement for the film depends on a character doing something. And... I really, really struggle to believe that character doing that thing because she's far too busty for this plot point to work. Yeah, that bothered me a little bit. But other than that, I mean, coming together and making something happen because we've come together, because we have been changed and our sense of community has been expanded by Leslie Manville coming in. And this sense of class, this sense of entitlement. I mean, we have Anna Chancellor as the woman who's bought this £500 Christian Dior dress and yet has not paid Leslie Manville for several weeks. 
we have the very flaky actress or aspiring actress Rose Williams, who even as Leslie Manville is in her flat, she's just flinging clothes around saying, I haven't got anything to wear, and just leaving a giant mess, even as Leslie Manville is in her flat. I mean, she is so inconsiderate. But this woman, Mrs. Harris, is just too insignificant to care about. And that's the attitude that everybody has. And by the end of the film, Leslie Manville herself has been changed and starts to stand up to these really obnoxious people. And it's somewhat triumphant when she stands up for her rights, for her workers' rights. I mean, it's it's surprisingly socialist, this film. But yeah, I also think it's really, really charming. I mean, I think Leslie Manville is great. She's always great. I mean, I love the fact that this is another film that Leslie Manville is in, revolving around 1950s fashion, because the last time she was in a film like that, she got an Oscar nomination for Phantom Thread. But yeah, Leslie Manville is great. Isabelle Huppert is great. The small roles for the people that Leslie Manville works for, Rose Williams, Anna Chancellor, Christian McKay, whose entire role was shot in one stairway. I mean, he is you know, a Whitehall type. I mean, he goes to work in a suit and bowler hat, but he has a series of nieces that Mrs. Harris meets on the stairway as she's going up to work and he's coming down. But yeah, Christian McKay is a very cool actor. The relationship between Lucas Bravo and Alba Baptista, I mean, it's the 1950s and it's France, so of course both of them read Sartre. But yeah, it's it's cosy and it's well executed and it's nice. It really did give me Paddington vibes, the idea that decency and honesty and hard work can overcome everything or anything. And it's a lovely little movie. I enjoyed myself an awful lot with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. And yeah, I think it is well worth checking out. So for me, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which should still be in the cinemas, is for me a yay. Next up, we have the anime film Inu O, which was given a special event release this week. And by the time this podcast comes out, I would be surprised if you can easily find Inu O at the cinema, but as it ever was with anime. This is the latest film from Masaaki Yuasa, who is absolutely my favourite animation director. I first came across him with his very obscure anime film, Night is Short, Walk on Girl. But, well, it must have been five or six years ago, it was on the eligible list for the animated feature Oscar, and I found it, and I watched it, and I was blown away with the exuberance of it the wild and crazy surrealism of it but also the heart that it had i mean there's some truly truly bizarre stuff which goes on in nice's short walk on girl but the emotional heart of it the emotional core of it i was very very impressed with and i loved nice's short walk on girl 
the same year eligible on the same list was the film Lou Over the Wall, which is probably his most commercially successful project about a ninkyo, a Japanese mermaid, who joins a group of humans in a band. Very much about the power of music. I mean, it's charming enough, it's sweet enough, but you know, not my favourite. But a couple of years ago, Masaaki was released Ride Your Way, which I have spent so much time praising, so much time talking about. If you listen to this podcast for any length of time, eventually I will start talking about Ride Your Wave because I honestly think it's a masterpiece. Yes, it's a very bizarre story about a young couple who are very much in love, but the boy who is a firefighter drowns while trying to rescue somebody and then manifests in any large body of water. So how long can this relationship survive when one of the participants is, you know, water? But I thought it was a very powerful story about grief. It was a relationship I actually completely bought which is quite hard to do in an animated feature. But yeah, a film, an animated film, which approaches subjects and themes which are rarely approached in animation in the Western world. And yeah, Ride Your Wave is a masterpiece. So when I saw that Masaaki Iwaza had another feature film out, I was very, very eager to go and see it despite the fact the trailer was rather confusing and I couldn't exactly figure out what was going on, but it was Masayaki Iwaza. So last Wednesday, I made the effort to go to my local Odeon cinema and check it out. It turns out that this is a highly fictionalised, highly mythologised story about one of the founders of No Theatre. Yeah, no theatre is akin to kabuki, very, very formalised, very, very ritualised. But these are performances which have been going on for centuries. And in the 14th century, roughly, we have a meeting between two people. One is a blind boy who was voiced by Mirai Moriyama, who is apparently a famous dancer in Japan. And I did see the Japanese dub. There is an English dub available. But Mirai Moriyama voices this blind minstrel. He is a Biwa priest, a group of blind monks who travel around telling stories using a Biwa, a kind of a, a stringed instrument. But he was blinded when court officials came to his seaside village and tried to get something out of the waves from an ancient battle. And when him and his father did get this thing from this ancient battle, it killed his father and blinded him. So he has certain resentments about the royal court. But now he's blind, basically all he can do is be one of these Biwa priests. And when he goes to the big city, which 
I think is probably Kyoto, although I'm not sure it's ever said on screen. But he goes to the big city and meets a boy who is hideously deformed and constantly wears a gourd mask. And his eyes are so misplaced and so misshapen that even through the two very wide holes of a gourd mask, he can still see. And it turns out this boy is the son of a dance troupe, but is so hideously deformed that he's just ignored, shoved out with the dogs. He hasn't even been given a name. But when he hears the music of Mirai Moriyama, this boy, voiced by Avu-chan, who is a gender-fluid pop star from Japan, they were formerly, and occasionally still are, the lead singer of a band called Queen Bee. Pronouns work slightly different in Japanese, but when... They are used, Avu-chan tends to use she, her pronouns. But yeah, Avu-chan is an androgynous figure who actually provided a Japanese language version of Staying Alive for the Bullet Train soundtrack. But yeah, I've seen a a YouTube video or two of Avu-chan performing with Queen Bee, and the thing that most came to mind was Brian Molko from Placebo. I mean, that's probably dating my musical tastes a little bit. But yeah, Avu-chan is a rather fascinating figure, and they perform and sing as Inu-o, which is what this hideously deformed boy names himself. With these two creative types meeting each other, they start creating a brand new style of music, a brand new style that breaks away from the very, very formalised, very ritualised traditions of no theatre, which obviously causes ructions not only within the dancing community, not least Ino O's father, but also the local shogun. And there will be clashes as this brand new style of music with these brand new stories come to the attention of the local shogun. But will these stories survive the centuries since the early 1400s when this film is set? So it is claimed over the end credits that this character Inu O is or was a real person. I honestly haven't been able to confirm that, but it's not the easiest thing to research on English language websites. But the claim is that Inu O was a real person, and a novel based on his life is what this animation is based on a novel written by Hideo Furukawa. But I mean, whether or not this is a real person, this is clearly highly fictionalized with spirits taking place, I mean, hideously deformed person gradually healing themselves through the power of song. I mean, when we first see Inu O, he has a right arm that is so long. It's like three times the length of his entire body. 
And as I said, he has this hideously deformed face, which he needs to keep behind a mask because it's so ugly. But yeah, I mean, this is clearly a very, very mythologized, very, very fictionalized story. But in telling this tale of the development of, of no, of performance, having these radically new, radically different things. I mean, essentially, it reaches a point in this film, Inu O, where it turns into a modern-day rock opera. I mean, basically, the music and the songs that come out of these characters, voiced by Mirai Moriyama and Avu-chan, is modern-day rock music. I mean, modern-day hair metal, basically. It's very anachronistic. It kind of reminds me of the Terry Pratchett novel Soul Music. I mean, using this mock medieval milieu and then using that to explore modern day music and modern day musical sensibilities. I mean, it's a very, very strange combination, but these songs really are good. I mean, as I said, I've watched the Japanese version. I'd be mildly curious to see how they translated it. But yes, Avu Chan is a very talented singer and he's got great vocal range. I mean, he can reach, or they can reach, some very, very high notes. But yeah, getting an actual rock star to play Inu O was, I think, a really, really good idea because the songs, the performances are great. I mean, the idea that in the 14th century, in feudal Japan, where everything is made of wood and bamboo, we essentially have rock stars and crowds akin to rock stars. I mean, there's even a point where the crowd starts doing the clapping and stomping of We Will Rock You, you know, the... I mean, that thing that you know, John Deacon came up with for We Will Rock You. It's having a rock star, the invention of a rock star in 14th century feudal Japan. And that's really, really fascinating. But it also ends up being a film about politics because one of the things that these two new musicians are doing is not only having a new style of music, breaking away from the very, very formalised no, but it's also telling new stories about this ancient sea battle that Mirai Moriyama's father dies trying to recover artifacts from at the beginning of the film. These are new stories, and they are not authorised stories. It doesn't necessarily make the Shogun look good that these new stories are starting to be told. So, as is ever the case with politics, the local shogun, the local politician, tries to suppress it, and kind of does. And you know, it, it's not insignificant that if this character Inu O did exist, his stories don't anymore, his songs don't anymore. Uh, and it's ultimately a film about artistic pursuits and people suppressing artistic pursuits and politics getting in the way and what is appropriate for the local ruler the local politician is not necessarily good for the performance 
I mean, when the local showman says there are hundreds, if not thousands of people who are going to these you know, rock concerts, essentially, that has the chance for subversion. So we need to stamp this out. And yeah, it, it's it's a very interesting blend of things. Similarly to Masaaki Iwaza's film, Lou Over the Wall, I think this is a film also about the power of music and the kinds of things which can happen when you join together in order to make music. But it's also very much about the use and abuse of political propaganda. And yeah, I mean, the style of this film is very cool. I mean, the character voiced by Miro Moriyama is blind. So there are a couple of sequences with visual representations of being blind, which are very, very well done. We also have the wild excesses of these you know, rock concerts and some nice intimate character moments as well. But in the elaborate, sometimes deformed style that Masaaki Iwaza often uses. I mean, Masaaki Iwaza is not an animation director who cares too much about remaining on model. His characters often deform and distort in interesting ways, and that is no different here. So, yeah, visually stylish, an interesting story. There is one moment of extreme, and in my opinion, unnecessary gore, but yeah, Inu O is interesting. I think it is too culturally specific, very much about feudal Japan very much about the history of no theatre, that I can't see it being fully embraced by a Western audience. But it's still really good. I mean, the songs by Avu-chan, who were actually written by Avu-chan as well, are very good. And yeah, it's a fascinating movie. So... A worthy addition to the filmography of Masaaki Waza doesn't come close to my favourite Night is Short, Walk on Girl and Ride Your Wave, but yeah, Masaaki Waza is a name you really should know, and I'm going to do everything I can to spread it. So yeah, for me, Inu O, which is probably not at the cinemas anymore, is a solid, but sometimes too culturally specific, meh. And the final film in this particular episode is the Finnish film Girls, 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 which I saw at a film festival a couple of months ago. And since I was convinced that Finland would submit this to the 2023 International Feature Oscar competition, which indeed they did do, I made the effort to go and watch it a couple of months ago to make sure I watched it. And it's just as what I did, because even though this film is being released this week at cinemas, the only screening that was available to a cinema I could get to was one screening on Thursday night at the Little Theatre, a preview screening for a film that then didn't get put on the schedule come Friday. So, 
yeah, I had one opportunity to watch this on Thursday night, and it's just as well I watched it a couple of months ago. And it is interesting that that preview screening was listed on the Little Theatre website as Girls, 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 because I had been under the impression that in the English-speaking world, it would be released under the title Girl Picture, which is a terrible title, and I suspect in America it is going to be known as Girl Picture to differentiate it from the old Elvis movie, Girls, Girls, Girls. I suspect that's what's happened, but however you find it, you might see this listed as Girls, Girls, Girls. You might see this listed as Girl Picture. But however you find it, here is the review I recorded a couple of months ago. Archive start. As part of the Queer Vision Festival 2022 at the Watershed Cinema in Bristol, I have watched a Finnish film called Girls, Girls, Girls. Or at least that is the literal translation of the Finnish title Titut, Titut, Titut. But apparently, in the English-speaking world, this film is going to be released under the much more generic and much more forgettable title of Girl Picture. So if and when this review ever sees the light of day, I will probably be saying I will be reviewing the Finnish film Girl Picture. Just stick with the original title. It's uh, much better, in my opinion, anyway. But regardless... This is directed by Ali Harpasalo, who has one solo feature-length film in her background, and she also contributes to an award-winning Finnish anthology film made by Finnish female directors and about Finnish women. But this is her true breakout. Girl Picture, or Girls, 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 won the Audience Award at the International Section of the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. And off the back of that, it also played at Berlin. And, almost immediately after that, played at the BFI Flair Festival, the London LGBTQ plus festival. Which is all to say that I would be absolutely astonished if Finland doesn't submit this to the International Feature Oscar next year. And for that reason, I wanted to make the effort to go over to Bristol for this festival screening in order to see it, because you really can never tell when and if you're going to see these high-profile international movies. So I made the effort to go over and see it, and with any luck, this review will see the light of day, because. I fully understand why this won an award at Sundance. This film tells the story of three girls living in Finland. Mimi, played by Armu Milanov, is an outsider, uh, an aggressively an outsider. She has short hair, she usually wears combat boots, she's very cynical, she doesn't shy away from attacking her classmates in PE lessons with hockey sticks. She's a loner. Her only friend is Runku, played by Eleonora Kauhanen, 
who is a much more approachable girl. Ronku and Mimi work together at a smoothie shack in the local mall and are basically best friends. But Runku has a problem. She is engaging enough and approachable enough that she has had interactions with many boys, but she has never found pleasure. She claims to have never had an orgasm. And her best friend, Armu Milanov, says, well, I can fix that for you, but... Adora Kohanen says, uh, sorry, absolutely 100% straight, not interested, even though you are my best friend. So, Eleonora Kohanen needs to go on a quest to find pleasure. And Armu Milanov has a quest of her own. After a typically cynical interaction at the Smoothie Shack, with a classmate, Emma, played by Linnea Lino, Armu Milinov is suitably chastised at the somewhat aggressive, somewhat flirtatious way she was talking to her customer at their smoothie shack. But it just so happens that Linnea Lino is going to a birthday party that night, and when this interaction is seen by the birthday girl, she says, ooh, that's so edgy, let's invite the cynical outsider lesbian and her friend to my birthday party. So, they go, even though it's definitely not Army Milinov's scene, but Eleonora Kalhanen is on the quest for an orgasm, damn it, and if there's a party, there's going to be hot boys. So, these three girls with adjacent but not really overlapping social circles, keep hanging out together, keep going to these parties. And gradually, a relationship forms, or at least an attraction forms, between Armu Milanov and Linnea Leno. But it is complicated by the fact that Armu Milanov is this cynical, quote-unquote, butch, and Linnea Leno is much more reserved and much more focused because she is an elite figure skater, and in two weeks' time she is going to a major competition and possibly she might be able to qualify for the European Figure Skating Championships. So this is something she has dedicated her entire life to, and two weeks before this major competition, Linnea Leno suddenly finds herself attracted to this girl. But it is complicated. So Armu Milanov and Linnea Leno have to figure out their relationship. And Elora Kohanen has to figure out how she can get an orgasm. And there are typical pitfalls along the way. And if I was being very, very cynical about this film and very pejorative about this film, I would say that. Yes, these are exactly the pitfalls you expect to see in this type of movie. The relationship between Armu Milanov and Linnea Leno goes along pretty much exactly the rails I expected it to go down. I mean, the cynic 
gradually has her heart melted and the girl who has dedicated her entire life to this pursuit of figure skating finally lets her hair down, finally lets herself feel these feelings. But Armu Milanov has severe abandonment issues and is definitely a commitment phobe. Hooking up randomly with girls and boys, it has to be said. And never finding an emotional connection. I mean, I think it's definitely a chicken and an egg situation. I mean, which came first, the commitment phobia or the abandonment issues? Because Armu Milanov's mother essentially abandoned her. She's gone off to a different town. She has a four-year-old son now with her new husband. And as far as Armu Milanov is concerned, as far as Mimi is concerned, and therefore as far as the film is concerned, her mother's perfectly happy with her new family off in this other city and doesn't care anything at all about her teenage daughter. So Armu Milanov has abandonment issues and justifiably has abandonment issues. And you cannot perceive any situation where somebody would actually want to stick around. So she starts sabotaging her relationship with Linnea Leno. But Armu Milanov is self-aware enough that she knows that's what she's doing. She knows that she's sabotaging this relationship and cannot help herself. She's that afraid of actually opening her heart and letting somebody in. And Linnea Leno, her thing is, she is such a driven character as elite sports stars always are. I mean, weirdly, I saw this film, Girls, 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 the day after I saw the Swedish film Tigers, which has a somewhat similar plot of a Scandinavian elite sports star cracking under the pressure of perfection. And Linnea Leno, I mean, she's obsessively trying to do this triple looks on the figure skating rank. Actually, it's uh, kind of similar to the Swiss-Ukrainian film Olga, with that main character desperately trying to do the Jaeger. But anyway, if I can't land the triple looks, I'm not going to go to the European Championships and suddenly I can't do it. I mean, does it have anything to do with I have something else in my life now? I mean, I'm definitely attracted to Armu Milanov, and there's complications all the way through this, and I basically saw all of it coming, but it's so well executed that you don't particularly mind that it's somewhat going along on rails, and I appreciate the fact of how understated a lot of this is. It struck me that this relationship between these two girls would have played out pretty much exactly the same way if it was a hetero couple. I mean, one mother, Armu Milanov's mother, doesn't even notice that her daughter has a girlfriend. And Linnea Leno's mother sees Armu Milanov at the ice rink as Linnea Leno's practicing and instantly says, oh, you must be my daughter's girlfriend. And that's as far as it goes. I mean, one thing I do love about this film is it is completely 
unclear whether Linnea Leno actually came out to her mother or had to come out to her mother. Is this a situation where the mother has always known, oh yeah, she's into girls, and you're at the ice rink, therefore you must be my daughter's new girlfriend? Or did she just tell her mother, actually, I'm in love with a girl? Or did she not say anything, and the mother is picking up, this girl is watching my daughter, oh, I guess my daughter has a girlfriend. It could be any of those things that we don't know, and we don't particularly need to know. I I love the fact how casual that scene was, that the mother says, oh, you're my daughter's girlfriend, hello. And that's fine. Uh, And contrasting that to Armin Milanov's mother, who doesn't even notice that her teenage daughter, A, has somebody with her, and B, it's a girl. I mean, in contrasting that and seeing how that all plays together, it's it's very, very well done, even though it is somewhat expected. What isn't expected is the other half of this movie. I mean, this is about the interaction between these three girls, and the other girl, Elora Kauhanen, she basically has her own plot. I mean, the centre of this film is Mimi, played by Armu Milanov, who's best friends with Ronku, played by Eleonora Calhanen, and and forming a relationship with Emma, played by Linnea Leno. But Eleonora Calhanen has basically her own entire plot, uh, and this persistent need, this persistent drive to have an orgasm. She knows you know mechanically what to do she is attracted to man one of the boys she finds herself in bed with says wow i can't believe how wet you are but she's just never had an orgasm and it becomes a more and more desperate quest for this to happen and more and more awkward interactions happen with this pursuit. I mean, yes, she's attractive. Yes, she's social enough to get invited to parties and be in situations where talking to boys and being attracted to boys and maybe even sleeping with boys is a possibility. But she's kind of a geek. And there's one very sweet scene where she kind of ruins the mood where, for reasons which do actually make sense in the film, she starts talking about ejaculating into a moomin mug. Which is weirdly Finnish, but yeah, I mean, she's the kind of girl who just blurts out this quote unquote interesting information when she's flustered. And sometimes that doesn't work well for her. So yeah, she's a little bit awkward, but she's attractive and you know, she is social. She's you know, the buffer between the wider world and her best friend Armu Milanov. She just hasn't ever had an orgasm, and she desperately, desperately wants one. And this brings me to a point where, arguably, what I'm about to say is a spoiler, but I had heard it in the publicity for this film. It was something that was in the back of my mind as I was watching it, although it doesn't appear to be in the official 
synopses and plot outlines of this film. So this possibly may be a spoiler, but by the end of the film, Eleonora Calhanan decides she's probably asexual. She just doesn't particularly like, I mean, how she describes it is, maybe I like kissing, maybe I like sex, maybe I don't. I don't know. But even the idea of being asexual is something that is definitely brought up in this film. And as things stand by the end of the film, saying that Eleonora Calhanan is playing an asexual character is probably the most likely outcome, the most likely scenario we are dealing with. So, basically, by the end of the film, we have a character who is bisexual, a character who is lesbian, at least on screen. I mean, she doesn't seem to be interested in boys. Emma doesn't seem to be interested in boys, whereas Mimi does. And Runku is asexual. So that's three different aspects, or potentially three different facets of sexuality, having a lesbian, a bisexual, and an asexual in this film. And they're all friends, and they're all... Well, friends is probably a bit of a strange term to use when you've got people who have slept together as part of this triangle. But, yeah, everybody's okay with their sexual identity, their sexual fluidity. And, yeah, it's... It's very well done. It's very well acted. It's very heartfelt. It's kind of crowd-pleasing in a weird way. It's got the intensity. It's got the passion of it. It's got the realism of it. I mean, these are girls, young women, figuring stuff out for themselves and coming to somewhat modern ideas and yeah it's very very well done i mean most of the film is the relationship between armo milanoff and Leno, and a lot of the beats of that relationship i could absolutely see coming but it has been executed very very well and the fact that there's even the possibility that one of the characters may be asexual i mean it's said in dialogue that that's a possibility That's kind of groundbreaking for a film which is going to end up, I think, being very high profile because, as I said, I would be astonished if Finland didn't submit this to the Oscars next year. And I think it's got a not unreasonable chance of getting at least on the 15 film long list. I mean, the audience award at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival was the Kosovan film Hive, which did end up on the long list. So. Yeah, if in and some misses, I think it's got a decent shout. And I did really like this film. I wish that they just stuck with the original title and called it Girls, 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 but apparently this is going to end up being called Girl Picture in the English-speaking world. And for me, it's a very entertaining, very sweet, very high math. Coming attractions. I'm recording this a little bit earlier than I usually do, and because of that, next week's cinematic 
schedules have not yet been released. They typically get released on Tuesday afternoon. So I can't guarantee what cinematic films I'll have available to me for the next cinematic episode of this podcast. There are three films I am very confident I will have access to at the cinema. We have The Lost King, the film by Steve Coogan about the woman who uncovered Richard III. We have The Woman King, the historical action epic about a group of African female warriors. And we have David O. Russell's new film, Amsterdam, about a group of people who are framed for murder and then uncover a giant conspiracy in the 1940s when they try to clear their name. There's a film announced as coming out at the cinema, but I do not know if I will have access to it. It's a film called Vengeance, written and directed by the actor B.J. Novak, about a cynical, left-leaning New Yorker who goes down to Texas for the funeral of a girl he dated a couple of times, only to discover that not only did this girl tell her Texan family that they were in a serious relationship, her family is also convinced she was murdered when, to all intents and purposes, it was an overdose. So, BJ Novak says, okay, there's something interesting here. I want to do a podcast about how these conspiracy theories mean nothing. But then his car blows up, so maybe there is something to this after all. And yeah, that sounds really interesting. Potentially also out at the cinema next week will be Lena Dunham's new film, Catherine Called Birdie, about a teenage girl fighting for self-expression in the Middle Ages. That is primarily going to be available on Amazon Prime Video, but occasionally Amazon Prime releases get cinematic releases as well so maybe Catherine Corberti will be out at the cinemas as well but either way I will be adding it to the Amazon list. What I can say for sure is that the next episode of this podcast will probably be a horror streaming special counting out all the horror related projects I've been able to watch at home. I've already got several in the can. I have watched the film available on VOD platforms and Shudder.com, We're All Going to the World's Fair, which is very, very slow and is not going to be to everybody's tastes, but I really, really liked it. The Disney Plus family-friendly film Hocus Pocus 2 is basically exactly what you expect from Hocus Pocus 2. And on Amazon Prime, Goodnight Mommy is an American remake of an Austrian film and in some ways I think is actually a better film than the original. It's a different film from the original, but in some ways I think it's better. So yeah, those three films, we're all going to the World's Fair, Hocus Pocus 2 and Goodnight Mommy will definitely be in the next episode, the streaming horror special. But also in that episode potentially will be the shudder.com films virus 32 the uruguayan zombie film from the guy who directed 
The Silent House, Raven's Hollow, in which a young Edgar Allan Poe gets caught up in mysterious shenanigans, the Senegalese film Saloom, where a group of mercenaries hide out in a ghost-infused region of Senegal, Who Invited Them, a quasi-home invasion movie, and Sissy, the Australian influencer revenge film. On Amazon Prime Video is the seemingly somewhat family-friendly spooky movie My Best Friend's Exorcism. And on Netflix, we have Jamie Foxx's horror comedy about a vampire hunter, Day Shift, the Spanish teen horror comedy Holly Blood, and, depending on when I actually record, released in the middle of this week is another spooky film on Netflix, a Stephen King adaptation, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, where a young man, Jaden Martell, has a relationship with a mildly creepy old man played by Donald Sutherland, and when he dies, his smartphone is put into the coffin with Donald Sutherland, and then Jaden Martell starts getting messages from the phone in the coffin. So, yeah, somewhat typical story from Stephen King, but that's being released onto Netflix in the middle of the week. And depending how quickly, or if at all, I manage to get any of those films watched, there are a few generic VOD releases that I might get around to as well. There's the psychological British ghost story here before, where Andrea Reesborough is convinced that the daughter of her new next-door neighbours is the reincarnation of her own dead daughter. There's the micro-budget horror comedy Val, about a demoness interacting with someone who breaks into her house. There's the COVID movie shot over Zoom intervention, where an amnesiac young woman suspects that the people who are video calling her have nefarious purposes. And potentially, there's also a film called Take Back the Night, which I believe is getting released this week on generic streaming platforms, but it's possible it might be ring fenced behind various other things. So, yeah, I don't know about Take Back the Night. I want to watch it, so I don't know if I'll have access to it. It's a young woman gets attacked by a monster, but nobody believes her, and she has a very difficult time persuading the authorities, look, something happened to me. So, allegory! But yes, Take Back the Night does look interesting, and I hope I'll have access to it this week. So that's a lot of horror-related stuff, which potentially might be in the next streaming special episode. But what will definitely be in the next streaming episode will be reviews of We're All Going to the World's Fair, Hocus Pocus 2, and Goodnight Mommy. But that is where I will leave this somewhat new formatted show. A reminder that there were two yays on this particular episode, two very, very different films. The bizarre and off-putting Flux Gourmet, 
which will not be to everybody's tastes. Peter Strickland is a weird filmmaker, and if you know you're going to get weirdness, I really enjoyed Flux Gourmet. It's strange, but I think it's compelling. And where Flux Gourmet is confrontational and off-putting, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is the exact opposite, but that is also a yay. It is gentle, it is cosy, it is nice, it is kind, and it does all those things with a warm heart, and people are changed, stories are changed, and it's just a very, very nice film. And in this particular case, that is not a pejorative. So that brings me to the end of this particular episode, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>